Let's, uh, for the moment, though, concentrate on the situation, the terrible situation uh, around Nagorno-Karabakh. The separatist leader of the self-declared state says their struggle for independence from Azerbaijan is over. We've been focusing through the week on the exodus of those who are now making their way into neighbouring Armenia. Uh, more than 70,000 ethnic Armenians are said to have left the disputed territory. That's well over half the population. The Karabakh had been controlled by Armenians for three decades. It was seized by Azerbaijan in a military operation last week. You say they want to reintegrate the people into Azeri society. But most, if not all, of those living in the enclave say they fear persecution and would prefer to live life in exile than under Azerbaijani rule. The Armenian Prime Minister, Nikol Pashinyan, accused Azerbaijan of conducting ethnic cleansing and has called on the international community to act. The exodus of Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh as a result of Azerbaijan's ethnic cleansing policy continues. Analyses of the situation show that in the coming days there will be no Armenians left in Nagorno-Karabakh. This is an act of ethnic cleansing. Uh, we can speak to our correspondent, Rehan Dimitri, who is in uh, Tbilisi for us uh, this evening. Um, uh, the figures that we're getting, 70,000, um, are those official figures? How easy is it to count how many people are coming across? Well, the Armenian authorities are um, counting the people, and the latest figure is even more, 74,000. They're saying that on average it's uh, up to 1,000 people that are being registered every hour. So um, these are the latest figures from the Armenian authorities. And we know that more people are trying to leave Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, I've seen some pictures of um, more vehicles trying to leave. Also, the Armenian authorities announced that they're sending buses to help those who do not have their own cars to leave uh, the enclave. And what about the route these people are taking to the Azeri border? Is that safe? Are they being intimidated as they leave? Well, they have to pass through uh, at least two checkpoints. One checkpoint is in the Azeri town of uh, uh, Shushi, uh, and the next one is right before they cross into Armenia proper. And yes, uh, people, in some cases, vehicles are being kind of mildly searched. The Azeri authorities, they said that they don't want to let some of the uh, members of the uh, illegal government, as they say, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, to leave. And we know that uh, some big figures have been arrested already. Yesterday, Ruben Vardanyan, who has been a state minister, he was actually a Russian citizen, and he renounced his citizenship, uh, came to Karabakh last year. Uh, he was arrested. Now he has been placed um, into pretrial detention and is facing really serious charges, including funding uh, terrorism. Um, so another high-level official from Karabakh, uh, David Babayan, he posted uh, a message saying that he knew he knows that he's on the blacklist and he decided to hand himself over to the Azerbaijani authorities. Okay, Rayan, stay there for, for us if you would, because uh, joining us from the Armenian capital, Yerevan, is uh, Politico's Gabriel Gavin. Um, he's just returned from uh, the border where he's been talking to people coming across. I mean, enormous in numbers uh, of, of, of children and older people mixed in, mixed in with those pouring across the border. Um, it's not a country, I don't suppose, Armenia, Gabriel, that can easily assimilate 100,000 people. Is there the sort of aid and support to be able to manage it? 
Well, look, as you say, uh, I've spent the last week on the border and for the past four or five days, the cars, the trucks, the buses loaded with whatever possessions people could get together at short notice just haven't stopped coming. And people are arriving with almost nothing, making them extremely difficult to get settled uh, of when, it, when the cap was only 60,000, it's now 75, it's now uh, 75,000 almost. Uh, actually, the, the Armenian government told me that only 6,000, 10% uh, of that number, had been actually rehoused. The vast majority of people are expected to stay with family, with friends, or to basically rent private accommodation themselves. Mm -hmm. But on the drive back to Yerevan tonight, I've just seen a string of vehicles running almost all the way to the capital with people's possessions loaded on top. And in many cases, people say that they don't think they will ever return home. So not only do they need short-term accommodation, they need homes for the long-term. They need schools for their kids. They need psychosocial support after having come through nine months of what people tell me felt like going through hell. Mm. Um, you're right. I mean, you, when you pause to think of what they've left behind, it's their businesses, their homes, their livestock graves, their the, the family members who are buried there. Um, it's an extraordinary uprooting of humanity. How do they feel, these people that you're talking to coming across the border, about the role the Armenian government has played in this? Well, I think just thinking about how they feel as they come across the border full stop, there's a bittersweetness. Uh, I think the people who've come across after spending 24, 30 hours in some cases in their cars, they feel a huge sense of relief. They think, well, there's fuel, there's water, there's food, my kids are safe. But at the same time, as you say, they've left behind so much uh, and so much that you know meant, meant more to them than you know. I think it's possible for even for us to imagine. I mean, the sense of their belonging to the land, to the place was really significant. I think people expect very little, I have to say. So uh, I don't think people feel entitled to everything. When I've asked people, you know, are you getting help? Are you getting support? The answer is often, no, I don't need anything. I will try and make my own way. So much so I spoke to a volunteer who was handing out sandwiches to people who haven't eaten a square meal for weeks in some cases. And she said, it's really hard to explain to people that they don't need to pay. People are trying to give me money for these. They don't understand mm. that we're trying to give them something for free. So there's really heartbreaking scenes that just show just how unused to the idea that these people have left their homes, just how, how, how shot in shock they are. And one woman said to me, she said, I'm worried that dressed like this and with all my possessions, people are going to think I'm a refugee. Mm. Um, Rayham, what, what about the way this is being viewed elsewhere in the Caucasus? When you think about South Ossetia and Abkhazia, other separatist groups in the Caucasus, are they feeling vulnerable at the moment? Are they watching this and thinking they might be next? Well, the first thing to mention is that uh, it's really astonishing that the Georgian government uh, has not issued a single statement since this crisis began, since Azerbaijan's military uh, operation last Tuesday. Uh, and uh, this story is not really featured that much in Georgian media, which is really surprising, given that there are three countries in the South Caucasus, Azerbaijan, Armenia and Georgia. But uh, yes, of course, uh, we've heard news from breakaway territories of Abkhazia uh, in particular. Um, these are the news that I've seen that, of course, they are watching with great concern what's happening there in Nagorno-Karabakh. Why? Because the Russians are looking the other way? <laughs> well, because, uh, because in some ways they are in a similar situation. But uh, uh, I think in Georgia's breakaway uh, territories, uh, uh, the local governments feel 
perhaps more protected by Russia because Russia recognized their independence, which was not the case in Nagorno-Karabakh. Yeah, interesting. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Rehan Dimitri, um, Gabriel Gavin, lovely to see you again. Thank you very much for coming on the programme.